Conversations. Hey everyone, welcome to Med Conversations. Today I'm here with endocrinology registrar Rebecca Foskey talking about hypothyroidism or every naturopath's favourite diagnosis for off-label treatments to help with their weight loss. What's your opinion on that, Beck? Do you <laughs> approve this practice? Thanks, Scott. Yeah, yeah, and really that's the main the main thrust of this episode, I think. Um, no, probably disapprove of that one. But, but yeah, what we're going to be talking about, talking about today is hypothyroidism for doctors and naturopaths who are keen to be uh, upskilled in this area, I suppose. We'll be going through some physiology and anatomy, epidemiology, history, exam, investigations, the causes and the treatment, all the, all the usual suspects. What we won't talk about very much is pregnancy, myxedema crisis. We're not going to go into any paediatrics at all. So I know that you all use med conversations as your one and only source of medical information, but in this particular circumstance, I'd advise against that. Also, not going to cover very much about iodine deficiency or excess in the Australian context. It isn't really that relevant, but internationally, iodine deficiency is actually the most common cause of hypothyroidism. So it is a a pretty glaring omission, but uh, at least we're putting a disclaimer out there. Cool. And yeah, there's lots of really useful stuff here, whether you're a med student or a GP or a non-endocrinology registrar, or maybe even an endocrinology registrar. Um, so starting off with the case, so Nala is a six-year-old lady who is a poet and she presents to her GP asking for blood tests. She gazes through you with her blue-grey eyes and flicks a grey st- scarf over her shoulder. I've been feeling tired and I think my persnickety anemia is playing up. Nala has been seeing you for B12 injections to manage her pernicious anemia but otherwise has no past medical history and takes no other medications. So I think at this point uh, we might just talk a little bit about some of the confusing terminology around hypothyroidism before we launch right into it. So firstly, myxedema is a word that means hypothyroidism. It's super confusing, so I'm not going to bring that up. But myxedema could be mixed up with pretibial myxedema, which is actually a dermatological condition that happens in Graves' disease, which is typically hyperthyroidism. So they're actually very different things, opposite things even. And uh, also don't get it confused with myxomatosis, which is the clinical syndrome caused by the myxoma virus used to control the rabbit population in Australia. Yep. Traps for young players. <laughs> Subclinical hypothi- hypothyroidism, we're going to be referring to this a lot during the podcast. Subclinical doesn't mean asymptomatic. It means that there's an elevation in the thyroid stimulating hormone without a decrease in the free T4. So we'll get way into the interpretation of the investigations later, but the key bit there is subclinical doesn't mean asymptomatic. And lastly, hypothyroidism is not hypoparathyroidism. Parathyroids are a totally different organ. Don't get them confused and it will just be embarrassing if we get to the end of the podcast and <laughs> we've, we've still got you thinking about parathyroid hormones. So we'll just keep the focus on, on thyroid here. So, Scott, I thought we might start talking a little bit about the anatomy. What are the main relevant kind of anatomical parts that are important in hypothyroidism? Yeah, well, I guess you've got obviously the thyroid glands in your neck, um, the big butterfly-shaped glands that we learn to examine in med school. Yep, so hopefully it's not too big. Um, but it's a, so, so this is a gland in your neck and it's quite low, probably lower than you think it is. And it has two lobes and then an isthmus, which is 
um, I think a, like an ancient Greek word or something for don't quote me on that a strip of land between two seas so basically it's just got this central bridge bit and then two lobes um, on the left and the right we'll come back a little bit to what can go wrong with the anatomy of the thyroid gland but that's the you know the key key lines about the the thyroid gland itself the other parts of the anatomy that are really important are the control center of everything so the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands so the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that's inferior to the third ventricle superior to the optic chiasm which is the the bit where the optic nerves cross over and also superior to the pituitary gland and the pituitary gland is a pea-sized master gland that dangles off the hypothalamus from a stalk called the pituitary stalk or the infundibulum. It's the anterior pituitary that we're mostly talking about today. That's where the thyrotroph cells are. And these are the, the cells that release thyroid hormone. Also one of the possible places where the soul resides. Is I that, think is so. Is that correct? Along yeah. with the pineal gland? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. So thyroid, hypothalamus, pituitary gland. Yeah, three key parts. And then that lends itself well to the physiology, which is all about the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. And this is really where endocrinologists get their kicks. This is all about the feedback loops. So basically, if we start from the top, the hypothalamus releases thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which does exactly what it says on the box. So thyrotropin gets released from the pituitary. And thyrotropin is another word for something you probably know uh, or sort of a more familiar with the term of thyroid stimulating hormone. Thyroid stimulating hormone also does what it says on the box. So this is a glycoprotein hormone released from the anterior pituitary that stimulates the thyroid. Okay, so, so TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone or thyrotropin, is released from the pituitary gland and stimulates the thyroid. That's yeah. okay. That's right. In response to the hypothalamus releasing TRH or thyrotropin releasing hormone. Gotcha. So then when the thyroid's stimulated, it makes thyroid hormones. And there's two main kinds of thyroid hormones. They're called T3 and T4. So T3, Scott, do you know what that stands for? Uh, well, I know that they're called T3 and T4 because one has three iodines and one has four iodines. Yeah. And T4 is thyroxine and T3, I'm not sure. Yeah, so T3 is triiodothyronine. And and yeah, exactly. So so the thyroid's making these two different hormones. One of them, T3, that has three iodine um, molecules on it and the other has four. So it actually only releases a tiny bit of T3. It's mostly T4. And the rest of the T3 in the body is synthesized peripherally. And the way this happens is that diiodinase enzymes flick off one of the four iodine ions on a T4 hormone. So it, it's getting rid of the fourth iodine and it's turning it into T3. Um, so Scott, do you know what the difference is between the potency of T3 and T4? Which one is kind of better or uh, more potent? I know that T3 is much more potent than T4. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's about four times more potent. And... Basically, all of those delicious feedback loops just keep everything in balance. So if there's too much T4 or T3, that feeds back on both the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus to produce less of those stimulating hormones. If you have not enough of them, 
it feeds back that it needs to be stimulated more. So if you have not enough T3 and T4, the pituitary will release extra TSH to compensate. So TSH usually doesn't vary very much, which means that it's a really useful test to, to check in a patient because it's quite significant if it is too low or too high. We're going to keep coming back to this again and again and again, but if you're a medical student, the key thing for you to take away from this episode and the main thing you need to know about thyroid disease is how to interpret thyroid function tests. So um, if there's a high TSH and a low T4, what would that be? That would be primary hypothyroidism. Exactly. Because your, your TSH is ramping up to try and make more thyroid hormone, but it's not being produced from your thyroid gland for some reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So primary hypothyroidism means that the pathology is in the thyroid. Low TSH and low T4 is also hypothyroidism, but this is called central hypothyroidism. This is where the problem is up north in the control centre. So it's either a problem with the hypothalamus or more commonly with the pituitary. So low TSH, low T4, central hypothyroidism. What if there's a high TSH but a normal T4? So that would be subclinical hypothyroidism. Yeah, which is that one that we talked about earlier. So you might still have symptoms. but It's called subclinical because it's not overtly producing, you know, in the end the T4 level is still normal. But high TSH normal T4 might eventually progress to overt hypothyroidism and there's some situations where that's clinically significant which we'll come back to. Sure, because the T3 and the T4 are mediating the effects of the thyroid hormone on the rest of the body, right? And the other non-thyroid tissues? They're mediating the effects of... Like affecting your metabolism, causing all this, most of the signs and symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So the, the T3 and T4 are, um, are very active all over the body um, but if they're in the normal range, generally there's no symptoms, but they still can be in the presence of a high TSH. They're usually just more subtle. Cool. I feel like that question was almost too obvious for you. Before you, you were giving me those <laughs> I'm eyes, just feeling like quite <laughs> sure what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about the history of hy- hypothyroidism, Beck. Okay, so I got stuck really deep in this. I'm going to have to give you a summar- summary because I ended up um, – preparing about a 50-slide <laughs> dissertation about this, but I love it. Um, so initially there was this guy, Garland, who thought that the function of the thyroid gland was to lubricate the larynx and for many, I think, centuries everyone just agreed that that was the most likely thing. And then uh, in the 1600s somebody else suggested that the purpose of the thyroid was to beautify the neck by giving it a rounded contour through filling the vacant spaces around the larynx and I think in the, in the late 1880s, which to me is worryingly recent, the thyroid was proposed as a receptacle of worms. Mm. I mean, are we sure that that's not the case? You know. I'm no surgeon. I might have missed some things. Mm. So what's, uh, what's happening with Nala again? So Nala, our um, poetical friend, uh, she – Nala – it has been staring out the window while you've been rambling on about the history of thyroid physiology. Um, so do you want to ask Nala any questions, Beck? Yeah, sorry, Nala. You were saying that you're tired? I've just been feeling a bit blur. I feel like this grey scarf, you know? Nala goes on, twirling the thick knitted scarf with her hand. I feel dull, grey, like I've lost my colour. I feel kind of chunky and slow. It's like someone's wedged a rock under the accelerator of my life, so even if I try to speed myself up, I can't. Even my daily poo takes longer. 
I can't concentrate enough to write poetry. It all came on slowly and I didn't really notice at the time, but in retrospect, I don't think I felt well since Christmas last year. Okay, so Nala is a 60-year-old woman presenting with a 10-month history of subacute fatigue, low mood, poor concentration and relative constipation on a background of autoimmune pernicious anemia and sounds an awful lot like an ABC radio show audio book. Even without formal examination, it's already evident to you that she's mildly overweight, wearing winter clothes despite the 25-degree spring day suggesting a cold intolerance, and her skin looks dry. So we're already a little bit worried about hypothyroidism, and given that's the name of the podcast, we're pretty sure that's the diagnosis, but uh, just uh, bear with us here. So, um, so, so now I thought I'd just define hypothyroidism. So this is a thyroid hormone deficiency, and it can be it can split be split into a broadly primary, secondary, and tertiary. So most, and by most I mean about ninety five percent of hypothyroidism is primary, where the pathology lies in the thyroid gland itself. But around five percent is central. Central being split into pituitary or hypothalamic, and the reason they lump them together is some some of the causes of central hypothyroidism affect both the pituitary and the hypothalamus, like a a big tumour or a big bleed in that general area. Okay, so both secondary and tertiary hypothyroidism are different kinds of central hypothyroidism. Okay, That's right. And this is a little bit in the weeds, but I've oversimplified things a little bit in the definition because as well as deficiency, thyroid hormone resistance can be a... uh, a way of there being hypothyroidism too. So there can be loss of function mutations in genes involved in thyroid hormone signaling in target tissues as well. But uh, unless you get a particularly gnarly MCQ question, I don't think that's important. So what about the epidemiology, Beck, of hypothyroidism? Is this something that only endocrinology people like you need to know or is it pretty common? No, look, um, it's it's really common. So about 0.5% of the Australian population will land themselves with a diagnosis of hypothyroidism at some point, overt hypothyroidism, which is 18 times more common in women. So, Scott, you're relatively safe compared wow, to me. it's huge. But subclinical hy- hypothyroidism is, is even more common. So around 5%, 1 in 20 of the Australian population. And there's a bit more of a level playing field here. It's three times more common in women. So the mean age at diagnosis in women is 60 years. So Nala is really, as a 60-year-old woman, is really your, your classic hypothyroid patient. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. So, Beck, what about, um, what are the signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism and how would you think about them? What categories would you put them in? Yeah, so we haven't gone too much into the pathophysiology yet of, of hypothyroidism, but just broadly... A lot of the things that occur are either due to slowing of metabolic processes, accumulation of matrix substances. So essentially, if you think of this as um, the interstitium being filled with some extra uh, proteins and then other things that don't really fit into either of that. The natural history is that it's usually quite gradual onset. If there's any abrupt onset of these signs and symptoms it's usually because of something iatrogenic like you just cut out their thyroid gland in surgery or they've suddenly stopped taking their levothyroxine treatment but the if we go through each of those broad branches one at a time so slowing of metabolic processes those kind of symptoms might be fatigue and weakness cold intolerance exertional dyspnea weight gain usually not a huge amount of weight gain so it doesn't usually cause 
obesity as such. Uh, it's, the weight gain is mostly from, from extra fluid. Cognitive dysfunction, so particularly attention. In, uh, in patients who developed hypothyroidism as an infant, then uh, you know, a, a full intellectual disability can occur. Constipation and, again, in children, growth failure. In terms of signs of slowed metabolic processes, this is where you get just general bradykinesia, so slow movement, slowed speech, delayed relaxation of tendon reflexes. So that this is actually a, a really common misunderstanding. It's not necessarily that the reflex is suppressed, it's that the reflex occurs and instead of bouncing back to their initial position, it sort of hangs in the air like someone's pressed pause and then it relaxes back down again. Bradycardia. And carotinemia, which is interesting, you know when people eat lots of carrots and their, their skin turns that sort of orangey-yellow colour, um, it's, it, that can occur also in, in hypothyroidism. Mm. Why There's, is that? Oh, don't ask me hard questions, Scott. <laughs> we talked about this. Do they also like eating carrots when your thyroid levels are very low? Is that yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that's it. That's it. It's definitely yep. it. Um, yeah, no, I'm actually not too sure about the mechanism of that. Sorry. The second thing uh, was accumulation of matrix substances. So that can lead to symptoms like dry skin, hoarse voice and edema, which is generally in the extremities but also periorbital and it's not pitting. So that differentiates it from the other kinds of edema you'd be likely to see like in heart failure. You can get loss of the outer third of the eyebrows and some enlargement of the tongue. Other kind of signs and symptoms hearing loss, generalised myalgias, paresthesias, or a common one is actually carpal tunnel syndrome, depression, menorrhagia, obviously not in a 60-year-old woman, um, but in, in the menstruating younger population, arthralgia, diastolic hypertension, or just hypertension in general, effusions, or fluid everywhere, so pleural and pericardial effusions, ascites, and uh, extending on the fluid everywhere, comment galactorrhea. So you can also get some, some leaking of milk from the breasts. Mm. Um, goiter is another sign. And as I said before, one of the main causes of hypothyroidism in Australia is primary hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's disease. And that can either be goitrous or atrophic. So in Hashimoto's, you can either have big goiter or, or actually a small thyroid. Mix it you in don't a need a goiter to have Hashimoto's. You, you don't need – look, no one needs a goiter, let's be <laughs> honest here. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. You don't need a goiter to get a diagnosis of Hashimoto's. Myxedema crisis, which used to be known as myxedema coma because it uh, really is the extreme of all these things and often does end in the patient being comatose – can present with all of these symptoms to the extreme. And we're not going to talk a lot more about it beyond that. So that's really low that's thyroid hormone. That's right. Yeah, undetectable thyroid hormone, usually for a, a prolonged period of time. Okay, cool. So um, what else, what other questions would you like to ask Nala, Beck? Yeah, so it's always good to, to check their past medical history and particularly whether they've previously had any thyroid disease. And if they have... What type was it? How was it treated? So Graves' disease in remission can sometimes really swing the other way and, and cause hypothyroidism. And previous treatment with, or even current treatment with things like carbimazole or propylthiouracil, if, uh, if they're taking those in too high quantities, if the dose is too high, then that can actually induce hypothyroidism. Previous thyroidectomy or, or partial thyroidectomy 
can of course induce hypothyroidism as can radioactive iodine which is often used as a treatment in both thyroid cancer and hyperthyroidism. It's also important to dig through that past medical history for anything that might actually be a complication of hypothyroidism. So this might include hyperlipidemia, anemia and heart failure. At this point, I would also start looking for things that might affect the way I treat the patient in terms of a bit more cautious, uh, using a bit more of a cautious approach in liver thyroxine replacement. And that would be if they already have a tachyarrhythmia like atrial fibrillation and if they have ischemic heart disease because giving treatment for hypothyroidism can worsen angina and actually can even induce acute coronary syndrome. Interesting. So um, what medications can cause um, hypothyroidism? Yeah, there's actually a list as long as your arm of medications that can cause it. But I think the key ones to look out for, the most common ones, are lithium, which obviously we use quite a lot in psychiatry, and amiodarone. Both of these can work in various different ways. And I guess the overlap is that it's mostly mediated by iodine. And we'll talk a bit more about this later. But also dopamine, either dopamine used IV in a really unwell patient or dopamine agonists like bromocryptine. Uh, and th- this class of drugs might be seen in Parkinson's disease or restless leg syndrome. So I guess other questions might be recent pregnancy? Yeah, totally. So in the postpartum state, then there are broader differentials for hypothyroidism and it's more likely to come on then. Yeah. And I guess if they have any family history of thyroid disease or autoimmune disease, it could put them at risk. Yeah, totally. And I didn't mention that in past medical history either, that autoimmune diseases tend to cluster together. So we know that our patient has pernicious anemia, but some of the other ones that go together with Hashimoto's uh, include vitiligo, type 1 diabetes. Um, they, do send, they do tend to come in gangs. So let's go back to the case again. How's Nala going? So Nala confirms that her only past history is of what was it, persinicky anemia or pernicious anemia. Um, and she has not missed any B12 replacement. She's never taken any other regular medications. She's postmenopausal and she has no known family history. Um, on examination, you find that she has a heart rate of 55, blood pressure of 140 over 105, and is afebrile. She has mild non-pitting edema to her feet, hands and face, loss of the outer third of her eyebrows and a hoarse voice. Um, she has delayed relaxation of her ankle jerk, as you said, hanging there in the air. She has no proximal muscle weakness or paresthesias, particularly no carpal tunnel syndrome, and no um, signs of heart failure. Um, You examine her neck, and beneath the famous grey scarf, you find a mild, firm, diffuse, and non-tender goiter. Um, There's no red flags on your assessment for infection, malignancy, diabetes, or acute kidney injury. Okay, awesome. So I think that it's important that we do just flag that there as well that that because hypothyroidism presents in a really vague non-specific way it's important that you don't just latch on to that as the diagnosis and some of the big red flags you need to look for uh, can be hidden and it depends on what the initial presenting complaint is and obviously a presenting complaint of fatigue is pretty mild uh, in many cases and people are just not getting enough sleep but you've got to make sure that they don't have uh, an occult severe infection or cancer or any of those other things don't put your blinkers on don't put your blinkers on. So what about what investigations should we order in Nala, Beck? Yeah, so you, you are going to investigate fairly broadly with some simple tests, but with regards to your suspicion that she might have hypothyroidism, 
The best starting place here is the TSH. But because we're pretty sure our index of suspicion is pretty high here, a normal TSH might not necessarily be reassuring enough for us. We kind of want to know what the T4 is as well. So what I would write on the pathology request would probably be TSH and free T4. Okay, so thyroid function tests, and particularly we want both TSH and free T4. That's right. So TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and we haven't really talked that much about what free T4 is as opposed to T4 in general. Um, So free T4 is the active T4, which is not bound to protein. It's the more relevant one to look for, and we don't tend to even look for total T4 at all. So FT4 is the way you generally request it. If you see T4, they'll be referring to free T4 on a test. Yeah. Yeah. So if you write on the request to most pathology services, if you just write thyroid function tests, what they tend to do is they send off a TSH and if that's normal, they don't do any further tests, which is fine if you don't think it's likely that the patient has any thyroid disease or particularly if you don't think that they have hypothyroidism. But a normal TSH might be associated with a low T4, in which case that would be pretty concerning because as we've talked about before, normal TSH, low T4 could be, or even a low TSH, low T4 could mean that you've got a patient with central hypothyroidism and you'd miss that if you just checked a TSH and it was normal and you didn't know that it was inappropriate for it to be normal. Okay, so we'd still pick up 90% of these hypothyroidism cases, but we'd maybe miss some of those uh, central hypothyroidism Yeah, yeah. in fact, cases. 95%. Okay, cool. Um, why don't you check the T3? Do you, or do you, do you generally check the T3, Scott? Uh, no, I don't. I've never <laughs> – I don't normally look at the T3, but what, what do you think, Beck? Yeah, so you can, so T3 is really important if you're looking at a hyperthyroid patient because they can get T3 hyperthyroidism where the T4 is normal, T3 is high and that matters. But in hypothyroidism, it doesn't really matter what the T3 is. You need to know what the TSH is. You need to know what the T4 is. The T3 could be low, could be normal, could be high. It does not change your assessment of the patient or your treatment. The reason it could be high, which might on face value seem to not really make sense is that the way that the body compensates for a low T4 is low T4 leads to a compensatory increase in the thyroid stimulating hormone from the anterior pituitary and that and that higher level of TSH stimulates the thyroid gland but it stimulates the thyroid gland to preferentially secrete T3 and also stimulates increased conversion of T4 to T3 which as we were talking about earlier happens in the peripheries that's that kicking off of that iodine ion to to make the or the iodide ion to make the more active version so the result of that might be that you end up with blood tests that show a high TSH a high T3 but a normal T4 and that could be subclinical hypothyroidism where the process is still that there's not enough thyroid hormone being made by the thyroid but there's a sort of compensated process happening so it doesn't matter what the T3 is. Don't check it. You'll get confused. Just check a TSH and a T4. Yeah. So that's just for hyperthyroidism where you check it. Okay, cool. That's right. Um, what about – so we've talked about how um, – so what if the TSH is high and the free T4 is low? Yeah. So if that's the that case, be? then that's primary 
hypothyroidism. The problem is that the thyroid gland has pathology and that it's not making enough thyroid hormone. Okay. What if the TSH is low or inappropriately normal with a low free T4? So this is where it actually depends a bit on context. We've talked already a lot about central hypothyroidism where the problem lies in either the pituitary or the hypothalamus. And the other differential for a low or normal TSH with a low T4 is actually something called thyroid or non-thyroidal illness syndrome. I see this probably three times a week. If you're checking the thyroid function tests of really unwell patients, particularly if they're in the intensive care unit or they've just had surgery, what you'll often see is this non-thyroidal illness syndrome that looks biochemically exactly the same as central hypothyroidism. So you need to know the context to know how concerned to be. We don't know a lot about non-thyroidal illness syndrome or CQ thyroid. So the pathophysiology is all very controversial and we also don't really know whether we should treat it or not. But in general in Australia, we don't treat it and we would just observe it and recheck again in six weeks. Whereas central hypothyroidism, you'd be getting on the phone right away to endocrinology. So that the difference is quite stark. Yeah. And what about if the TSH is also low um, and either the free T4 or the free T3 is high? Yeah. So if they're both on the higher end of things, then it's hyperthyroidism. Um, so the TSH is low as a, as a response, as part of that negative feedback loop to having elevations, abnormal elevations of the free T4 or the free T3. So when would, could your test be inaccurate if it doesn't fit your clinical picture? Yeah, so look, this is in the weeds, but it is relevant for physician trainees and it actually is really relevant for, for anyone who's doing sending off these tests because in around 2% of the population, around 2% of the population have heterophile antibodies and they're these antibodies which, without getting too into it, can interfere with the immunoassay that detects... TSH and some of the thyroid hormone as well as some of the other endocrine tests that we can do and it can make it can just falsely look like they're positive so it can make the TSH look like it's higher or the T4 look like it's higher than it truly is. Biotin which is a supplement that is quite commonly taken can also cause a bit of interference so basically I think the take-home here is if the test doesn't make sense, either just looking at the results, the T4, T3 and TSH don't really seem consistent with each other, or if it's not consistent with the patient's clinical picture, call the lab and they can often run the test using different um, immunoassays or or, or different kind of systems. Mm. And ask about supplements as well. Mm. So Nyla's blood tests are back and uh, drumroll, hang on. I'm going to give up. Um, (laughs) TSH is 22, which is very high above the normal range of 0.3 to 5. And her free T4 is 4, which is low, below the normal range of 12 to 22. So, Beck, what's that? Yeah. So, first step is this is hypothyroidism with that low T4. And the second step is to say that this is primary hypothyroidism. We've got a high TSH and we've got a low T4. Great. So other bloods show that she's not anemic. There's no other um, sources of that fatigue. Uh, Her B12 and iron levels are normal and her renal function is normal as well. Okay, that's great news. 
So, Beck, what are the different causes of hypothyroidism? Yeah, so over 95% of cases in Australia are primary, so the pathology lies in the thyroid, and less than 5% are central, where the pathology is in the hypothalamus or the pituitary. So if we split each of those categories into two, they can either be caused caused by loss of functional tissue in the relevant organ or functional defects in the hormone biosynthesis and release. So if we take primary hypothyroidism first, causes of loss of functional tissue, overwhelmingly the most common thing is chronic autoimmune thyroiditis, which is Hashimoto thyroiditis. Other causes are reversible autoimmune thyroiditis, so this is your silent thyroiditis or postpartum thyroiditis, surgery or previous radioactive iodine or other radiation, or subacute, or, uh, which is also known as de Quervain's thyroiditis. Then there's functional defects in thyroid hormone biosynthesis and release, which could be congenital, could be from iodine deficiency or excess, it can be either deficiency or excess, and drugs, antithyroid agents obviously can cause um, low synthesis and um, release of thyroid hormones because that's what they're designed to do. So this is your cabimazole and propylthiouracil, but also amiodarone, lithium, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Lithium works basically by increasing the iodine content in the thyroid gland and interestingly can cause either hyper or hypothyroidism. And amiodarone can also cause either hyper or hypo, both by increasing the iodine content and also some direct actions on the thyroid that we won't go into today. So cool. that's the that's the primary thyroid causes. Yeah, so what about central, so hypothalamic or pituitary? Yeah, so again, those same categories, loss of functional tissue or functional defects in the TSH biosynthesis and release. In terms of the functional tissue loss, the main one and really the only one that you're likely to see in day-to-day clinical practice is tumours. So macroadenomas of the pituitary are certainly not uncommon and they often lead to hypothyroidism. Craniopharyngiomas are more commonly seen in the paediatric population but another key cause of this. Otherwise trauma, vascular changes, whether that's hemorrhage, including hemorrhage into a pituitary adenoma which is called pituitary apoplexy, or something called Sheehan syndrome which is rare but somehow was definitely hammered into me when I was a medical student for some reason. Basically, this is where postpartum hemorrhage can lead to pituitary ischemia and necrosis. Infections very rarely can cause a a central hypothyroidism. Scott, have you ever seen infections causing hypothyroidism? There's a long no. pause inside there. <laughs> yeah. So neither neither have I. This is this is really in the weeds. But I think it just it, it talks to the it speaks to the fact that it's always good to have a system when you're thinking of causes of anything, and infection is usually on that list somewhere. But what you're looking for here mostly is things like abscess. There's also other much rarer things like I don't know, tuberculosis or syphilis, but I wouldn't worry too much about that. And similarly, infiltrative conditions like sarcoidosis, but again, super rare. Then our second branch was functional defects in TSH biosynthesis or release. And the main causes here, again, pretty rare. Drugs, dopamine, dopamine agonists, glucocorticoids can actually do this, and genetic mutations. There's also thyroid or non-thyroidal illness syndrome, which we talked about a little bit when we were chatting about investigations. 
So what now um, with Nala? Should we do antibodies, do you think, Beck? So strictly, you don't need to. The clinical picture is fairly compelling. It's probably Hashimoto thyroiditis. And in this patient, 60-year-old woman with autoimmunity, it's almost definitely Hashimoto thyroiditis. Um, antibodies are most appropriate in subclinical hypothyroidism to help predict the risk of progression to overt hypothyroidism, which is more likely in those who are antibody positive. But you don't necessarily need to do it in Australia with overt hypothyroidism. If you are checking antibodies, the relevant ones in hypothyroidism are anti-TPO or thyroid peroxidase antibodies or antithyroglobulin. The second one, antithyroglobulin, is pretty non-specific and mostly because it's often positive in healthy people, mostly just used uh, in follow-up of thyroid cancer to help understand and interpret their thyroglobulin levels, which is another story for another day. Okay. So the other type of antibody, which isn't relevant for hypothyroidism, but TSH receptor antibodies, is pathognomonic for Graves' disease, which is a type of hyperthyroidism. That's right. There are some situations where that might not be entirely correct, but I think that that's, that's definitely the way to think about it um, if you're in a non-specialist field. Or in MCQ land. Yeah. All right. Um, any other blood investigations you would do, Beck? Yeah, so I'd check the lipids. Hypercholesterolemia can some, be something that results from hypothyroidism. We already know that she doesn't have a macrocytic anemia, but you might want to make sure that a patient doesn't have this. And actually, macrocytic anemia might prompt you to check the TSH in the first place. It's often how uh, hypothyroidism gets diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Hyponatremia is pretty common, so making sure you've checked that UEC. And an increased creatinine kinase, which is not a test that I would do as a standard, but certainly if it's really severe hypothyroidism and definitely in myxedema crisis. Cool. And if, if we thought she had a central hypothyroidism, so the low T4 and the low TSH, would we do any extra tests? Yeah, absolutely. So you'd be checking all of the other pituitary hormones and their target hormones. So full pituitary panel, which in, involves an ACTH and a cortisol, FSH, LH and the sex hormones and IGF-1. So um, her t so Nala's TFTs are abnormal, so should I always do an ultrasound? Yeah, so in this case, it's not the TFTs being abnormal that should prompt an ultrasound, but because there is a palpable abnormality, you thought you could feel a goiter, that would be reasonable to examine with an ultrasound. But if, the, uh, if there's no palpable abnormality, you shouldn't do an ultrasound. That was actually one of the, um, the key recommendations from our... I can't remember what it's called, but the the Australian guidelines that are designed to stop doctors from doing unnecessary tests. That was the one of the key endocrine things. Cool. And um, so the reason oh sorry. No, you go. <laughs> You're the expert. <laughs> the reason the reason for doing an ultrasound in a palpable abnormality is to exclude cancer and exclude retrosternal extension. Cool. Okay. Um, and when should we think about doing a nuclear thyroid scan? Why do they do that? Yeah, so that's only in hyperthyroidism. So to see if the if a patient has nodules, to see if they're hot or cold, or to see the overall activity of the thyroid gland. So it's never indicated just for hypothyroidism. Cool. So Nala has a thyroid ultrasound and some further bloods and returns for review. You note that her um, anti-TPO and, and um, anti-TG antibody are positive. Thyro thyroglobulin, yeah. <laughs> thyroglobulin. Um, and the ultrasound shows a diffuse goiter consistent with Hashimoto's disease with no retrosternal extension and no 
nodules that look suspicious for malignancy. So you diagnose Nala with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She's not surprised, she tells you, given that she's always been heavily influenced by Japanese literature and poetry. So, but given that we've said that Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the most common cause of primary, uh, well, hypothyroidism, can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so the other name is chronic autoimmune thyroiditis and essentially it's the destruction of thyrocytes and development of hypothyroidism that's mediated by cytotoxic T-cells and cytokines that are released by macrophages and T-cells that are infiltrating the tissues. So there's goitrous and atrophic forms, which I think we mentioned earlier when we said that you don't always have a goiter in Hashimoto. Mm, Yeah, good to know. And um, how many people have risk factors? Yeah, um, 743. (laughs) (laughs) No, 80% of people with Hashimoto have a positive family history, which is pretty huge, really. Um, It's 10 times more common in women than in men. And it tends to cluster with other autoimmune diseases, as we talked about before. So the main ones are vitiligo, pernicious anemia, Addison's disease, type 1 diabetes, and alopecia areata. Interestingly, it's one of very few conditions that gets better with smoking. So in those who, um, in those who smoke, there's a reduced risk of development of TPO antibodies and a reduced risk of progression to overt hypothyroidism. Remembering all the risk factors of hypothyroidism for cardiac disease. So still don't recommend it. So, um, and what antibodies would you usually have? Yeah, so anti-TPO and um, anti-thyroglobulin, but these are not thought to be pathological. So it's not the antibodies themselves that are causing the disease. In terms of the natural history, usually Hashimoto thyroiditis comes on very gradually over months, if not usually years. Rarely... There can be a transient hyperthyroid phase or hashitoxicosis, but most of the time it's just hypothyroidism and generally it's permanent. So it doesn't tend to be something that remits or, or goes uh, gets better with time. So what are the complications of hypothyroidism? We've already talked about this a bit, but any other ones you want to highlight? No, I think we've, we've already mentioned them. So increased in incidence of cardiovascular risk factors, so hypercholesterolemia, high blood pressure, left ventricular systolic dysfunction. And generally these do get better when you do treat the hypothyroidism. Cool. Provided so, you don't give the patient counselling that they should start smoking. Okay, cool. So as someone who's not an endocrinology registrar, if you're thinking about starting treatment for um, uh, primary hypothyroidism, uh, how would you do it? Yeah, so firstly, pick your patient. And the kind of people that you should be starting treatment on are those with overt hypothyroidism who are symptomatic, so overt as opposed to subclinical. Okay, so... So definitely that category. That low that T4, was, yep. Yep, so low um, low T4 with high TSH or with low or um, inappropriately normal TSH in the case of central. Yep. The next category would be patients with subclinical hypothyroidism who you would treat if the condition was persisting for more than six weeks and if they either had symptoms or a very elevated TSH, so greater than 10 where the normal range is less than 5. Patients who are asymptomatic and have a TSH less than 10 with subclinical hypothyroidism, subclinical hypothyroidism rather, probably don't need treatment. If you do think that it's central hypothyroidism, so a pituitary or or hypothalamic pathology, then you really shouldn't start, or you definitely should not start treatment with levothyroxine 
until you've excluded or treated glucocorticoid deficiency, which often comes hand in hand with it. And that's because if you start thyroxin, you can precipitate an adrenal crisis once you kickstart the metabolism. It's best in these patients not to be a cowboy about it and get an, an endocrinology specialist involved. Cool. And if you do want to start levothyroxine? Yeah, so your options are either full replacement, so this is weight-based, and you can look it up on the therapeutic guidelines. It's 1.6 micrograms per kilo per day. It's a, an oral tablet that is taken every day. Or you can have partial replacement. So this is in the old, the frail, the patients with cardiovascular disease who you want to start low and go slow with. And in those patients, you might start with 25 or 50 micrograms a day. The reason is that thyroid hormone increases myocardial oxygen demand and there's a risk of inducing angina or actually an MI, a myocardial infarction. So you want to be softly, softly there. And... Scott, uh, we usually start we usually start patients on thyroxine together with a bit of counselling about storage and administration times. So, storage is not something we really think about in hospital medicine, but if you're in outpatient land, you need to tell patients to keep their levothyroxine in the fridge. Not all brands actually require this, but um, it's safe in all brands, so you might as well just do it. Um, and administration time. So you're meant to give it on an empty stomach and what I generally tell patients is to take it first thing in the morning before at least 30 minutes before any other food or any other medications or later in the day they can take it as well as long as it's two hours after food or other medicines. I definitely eat every two hours so I don't think this would fly for me. Yeah. What, um, so if they, what happens if people eat at the same time? Is it a disaster? It's, it's not a disaster, um, but it does reduce the absorption. So what that means is they might need a higher dose. What is a disaster is if they sometimes eat with it and sometimes don't, and if they're eating different amounts. So for consistency, it's better to always have an empty stomach. And if a patient misses the dose, the next day, should you give them a double dose? Yeah. So what matters is the total amount that they get in a week. So theoretically, they could actually get the whole week's dose on a Saturday. We don't tend to do that. Um, it can make it harder to titrate, but there's no reason really that we that we wouldn't do that. Um, <clears throat> so so half-life is like a week, right? Yeah, that's right. Cool. So you could have different doses on different days and, and it's, a t- it's a tiny dose, so you don't really want patients splitting tablets. So what you often do is give patients different doses on different days. So, you know, 100 micrograms Monday, Wednesday, Friday and 150 micrograms on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. So earlier we talked about myxedema crisis, so that undetectable um, thyroid hormone. Um, So what do we do in that case, Beck? You send them to a big hospital in the intensive care unit. This is pretty subspecialised and I think that it's important to get the right people involved and it's one of those situations where in a rural or remote area you'd be flying them to a tertiary centre most of the time. Um, So essentially... We treat it the same way as as any other hypothyroidism. We use thyroid hormone, but in this case, you need to use intravenous formulations because the patient's gut metabolizes things so slowly. And as well as using levothyroxine, which does come in IV form, you tend to also use uh, T3, which is lyothyronine, which is IV. You watch the heart for, as we've mentioned a few times before, the the risk of their um, precipitating a um, myocardial ischemia and that kind of thing. Cool. So um, you start Nala on levothyroxine, 125 micrograms per day. She asks you, will this make my goiter go away? 
Yeah, so goiters tend to get better, but they don't often they often don't disappear. Usually there's some scar tissue holding it there. And now that you've started Nala on treatment, Beck, when should you book her next appointment? Yeah, so the half-life of thyroxin is about seven days and steady state of any medication is usually about four or five half-lives. So in thyroxin is four or five weeks. And the response of TSH also tends to lag behind the response of the T4. So in general, you should titrate monthly at most, but often we say six weeks. And when we get her back in again, we'll have to check her adherence and checking whether she's storing it properly in the fridge and administering on an empty stomach. In terms of the way you titrate it, you look at both the T4 and the TSH. And it's not just a matter of making sure that things are in the normal range. So for young people, you want the TSH to fall in the lower half of the normal range. Older people, healthy older people tend to have a higher baseline TSH. So you'd accept a a higher TSH, but still within the normal range in, in the elderly. And... Uh, And also in the elderly, you want to be less aggressive because the uh, thyroid hormone requirements not only decrease with age, but they're more susceptible to the consequences of overtreatment. Central hypothyroidism um, is a completely different story. So we know that they've got central hypothyroidism because their TSH is low or it's inappropriately normal. So don't use the TSH as a guide to, to titrate your, your um, liver thyroxine treatment. You're just looking at the free T4 in this case and you want that to be in the upper half of the normal range. Totally disregard the TSH, don't even look at it. What about if someone's um, uh, previously had thyroid cancer? Yeah, so this is where things can get really dicey and it's important that an endocrinologist is involved in the management uh, if there has been an aim for TSH suppression. So part of the treatment after a patient has had thyroid surgery and and radioactive iodine treatment is often a suppression of their TSH. So we'll actually intentionally induce a degree of hypothyroidism. And the reason for that is that TSH stimulates the thyroid gland and it might cause a um, recurrence of the sort of repeat arisal of the thyroid cancer. So in patients with high risk cancer, high risk for recurrence, the TSH goal is usually less than 0.1 milliunits a litre. So generally defer to endocrinologists for management of this. Okay, so you want to induce like a mild hyperthyroidism to stop their thyroid tissue growing and that, becoming cancer. That's right, only mild. It's a bit of a balancing act. Cool. Um, and just out of curiosity, uh, we talked about how you wait four weeks. What about in um, a myxedema crisis? How do you titrate? how much thyroid hormone you give then or you're not sure? Uh, look, it, as I said, it's it's pretty it's pretty complicated and, and you want to make sure that you don't restore a patient to euthyroidism too quickly in mixed edema crisis and you would de- generally titrate that more quickly um, but still very cautiously okay. and they're on IV at first so you're t- often titrating day by day at first. Okay. And coming back to a much more common situation, uh, when you're titrating these uh, liver thyroxine doses, um, how much should you go up at a time when you've checked in on them at that four to six week mark? Yeah, so 
I use this as a blanket rule for all the drugs in endocrinology. I think if you need to increase insulin or thyroxine, it doesn't matter. Um, if you're increasing or de- decreasing, a 10 to 20% increment is about right. So the way that I do it is usually a bit of a frantic back of the envelope calculation when somebody calls me. I calculate what their weekly dose is, add that up, and the sum of the weekly dose I will add or subtract 10 or 20% and then add that to the weekly dose and divide it by 7 usually getting some weird number that doesn't fit in the number of tablets and that's where you end up with patients who are on different doses every day. As we've talked about before, the week, the total weekly dose is what matters. It doesn't matter what they get on any particular day. Cool. And then once their dose is stabilised, um, how often do you see them? Yeah, so then you measure at three months, six months and then just once a year. There are some situations where you want to check in again. So if you're starting a woman of childbearing age on... A, um, on thyroid hormone replacement, you can warn them that they're going to need a higher dose if they do become pregnant. But also if they start the oral contraceptive pill or in, in men as well, if there's significant weight change or they started on a PPI, that might change the dose too. So they're the different situations that might suggest they need their, a check-in of their thyroid function test again. But tell me, what happened to Nala? So six weeks after starting thyroxine, Nala comes back for a review. Now her TSH is 2.5 and her free T4 and T3 are both normal. She's shifted her mood and she's wearing a brightly coloured polka dot scarf. Her goiter, however, is unchanged. So she tells you, Dr Beck, that she's so thankful that she actually wants to write you a poem or she's written you a poem, a haiku inspired by her <laughs> connection with <laughs> um, Hashimoto's disease. And here we go. Tired, grey, fat, goiter. My hurt thyroid. (laughs) (laughs) Saved by drugs. Protecting my gift. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's amazing. She's a brilliant poet. Yeah. You're so lucky to have such talented patients and you've saved their gift for the world. You've spread it out there. Beck is very impressed, I can see. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm moved. Um, but let's summarise anyway. So, okay. So that we might be able to help future artistic souls. So, thyroid disease. Hypothyroidism is very common. You should have a th- high suspicion for it, especially in middle-aged women, and it's easy to rule out with simple, cheap blood tests. Um, signs and symptoms are mostly generalised slowing of all the metabolic processes, things like you know weight gain, um, slow thinking, dry skin and delayed tendon relaxation, non-pitting edema, and they can have a goiter but sometimes don't. If there's an elevation in the thyroid stimulating hormone or TSH, it's almost definitely from primary hypothyroidism, which is overt if the T4 is also low or subclinical if the T4 is normal. And in Australia, the main cause of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto thyroiditis. Um, So if they've got um, low T4 with low or normal TSH, it could be central hypothyroidism or sick euthyroid, depending on the context. Don't overdo unnecessary investigations. Start with thyroid function tests. Antibodies and ultrasounds are often not necessary at all, let alone as a first investigation. And treatment is with levothyroxine, which is synthetic T4. Don't muck with the thyroxine dose for patients who have a history of thyroid cancer. Check the target and ask the endocrinologist if they're not within that target. Cool.
Well done. I think there were lots of good learning points there, Beck. So thanks for putting that together. Great. Thanks for listening. And for our loyal listeners, if you did like this episode, please shoot us a message on Facebook or um, or give us a rating on wherever you're listening to your podcast, so on Apple or Spotify. And if you didn't like the episode, uh, don't send us a message or leave us a rating. Yeah, no. Just stay away. We, we, do, we do really like feedback. So either way, get in touch. We really love hearing yeah. from you all. Or even if you want to nominate us for the next year's Nobel Literature Prize, that's also an option. Also acceptable. Yep.